Hello, and welcome to episode 179 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Ambassador Dirk Wouters, the Belgian ambassador to the United States since 2016. Ambassador Wouters is the former chairman of the Association of Diplomats of the Belgian Foreign Service. He's also the former permanent representative to the European Union from Belgium from 2011 to 2016. Ambassador Wouters is the former deputy permanent representative to the United Nations and contributed to the creation of the International Criminal Court in The Hague. He is a former chief of staff to the Belgian Minister of Foreign Affairs, a guest professor of European issues at the Catholic University of Louvain, and a former diplomatic advisor to Prime Minister Herman Van Rompuy. Ambassador Wouters, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Uh, I'm fine. Uh, this today is the is the the Monday after after Easter. Normally, it is a. Uh, a holiday in my country, but I'm really very happy to work in the United States on this particular <laughs> day. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to take a day away from vacation. Um, <laughs> if we proceed, I have the first question I'd like to ask you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? Well, I think that, uh, and you just read part of my, uh, uh, my curriculum, I've dedicated uh, almost two-thirds of my uh, professional a career to European affairs mm-hmm. and uh, the policy, the European policy of my my government. And um, <clears throat> if I can make uh, a confession, mm-hmm. I think for a Belgian diplomat, it remains um, um, a great uh, thing to be able to um, work uh, in favor of the perspective and the hopes of the European project and the Europeans, in particular the young people. And so I'm trying to put my service, my uh, modest abilities to, the, uh, to work on that, um, uh, on that project. And, uh, um, and I've come at a, at a time when I, I really want to give, to give something back to the young people. And that's also one of the reasons, and you mentioned this, Mr. Cooper also um, in the introduction. It's one of the reasons why I started with more than 10 years ago lecturing or teaching at, uh, at Belgian universities. Now, there is uh, a, a rising tide of populism across mm-hmm. Europe and the world, frankly. We saw it in the United States, the election of the new administration, and you see it with the rise of far-right and far-left government uh, representatives in different uh, areas of Europe. You saw it with Brexit. Um, there were different uh, areas of instability with Italy and with Greece and um, with different accession process in, in Eastern Europe. What do you attribute this rise of populism to, especially within this young group that you say you're targeting? And why, I guess, what's the appeal of, of the European Union? But more importantly, right now, what what is the detraction? Why are people not finding the EU to be an appealing uh, institution of which their state should be a member? Yes, here, here are a couple of points. First of all, uh, on the uh, ideology of populism. I want to say that this is a, a very poor ideology because it is one that uh, sees the um, society as being formed by two antagonistic groups, mm-hmm. the, uh, the pure uh, white people against the corrupt uh, elites, 
and uh, and uh, moreover, they they think that uh, politics should um, be governed by the general will of the people. Mm-hmm. Should be the expression of the general will of the people. Um, it is a an ideology that is promoted by people who are not that much, much interested uh, to govern and to take up responsibility and to service their country they, uh, because their main force of attraction is uh, the attraction of the outsider. And once they become an insider, mm-hmm. I mean, they have to, uh, uh, to deal with the world and uh, with the problems as they arrive on the table mm-hmm. and not just as they would like to see them. Uh, having said this, uh, it is true that uh, there has been a rise in populist parties. It is especially on the right, uh, the right populist. Mm-hmm. They are uh, a threat to the European Union because mm-hmm. they are anti-European Union. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because they cannot accept that there is a higher authority, a supranational authority, mm-hmm. that um, supersedes or would supersede uh, the um, the overall will of the people and, and, and would decide in, in, in a way that maybe serves the general interest of the European Union, but not necessarily express uh, the will as they would define it as... Uh, right-wing ideologists. Now, to what extent would you say that the Belgian national interest aligns with the interests of the European Union? Uh, that's a very good one, mm-hmm. because in the in the more than 60 years that we have been uh, a member of the European communities and then the European Union, mm-hmm. I think it's, um, it's fair to say that most of the time, most of the time, on uh, most issues, the... <clears throat> national interest of Belgium and the European interest of the EU more or less coincided, which gives us the possibility in the negotiations to play both the European card and the national card. And this approach has given over all these decades Mm -hmm. for the Belgian diplomats, Belgian diplomacy, the Belgian leaders working for the European Union, an extra leverage because no. because they they probably understood much better the positions of the others, the south, the north, the east, of the west. They they were looking at the overall interest, and they could position them in in the center and 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 become, let's say, the solution of a problem that had to be solved. So if Belgium is so fortunate as to be able to align its national yeah. interests with the interests of the supranational European Union, is that a unique uh, situation? And if it is, do uh, you or other or do Belgian politicians have sympathy with politicians and other nations that would like the EU to survive but see a greater disparate discrepancy between their national interests, say in Eastern or Southern Europe, with the interests of the entire EU? We would certainly have sympathy with all those politicians that want to fight for the survival of the European Union. That uh, goes without without saying. I think we have uh, in Belgium because we are we have our special composition uh, with uh, let's say uh, a northern part Flanders and a southern part Wallonia and then in the center Brussels. All three communities uh, characterized. I would even say with three different economies, mm-hmm. 
So we have in the preparation of our own position on European issue, we already have a first <laughs> internal negotiation that in many that very often resembles the arguments that we hear then at the European table itself. So you have three distinct communities within Belgium with, and that lends itself to scaling with the EU where you have so many differences. Yeah, and, exactly. So we are we are like uh, like some other countries, we are both north and we are and south. So you're scaling up basically your so, national politics. So uh, and so we we understand the arguments that we hear at the European negotiation table. Um, and 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 that probably give us some understanding of the sensibilities of the of the others. Having said this, um, um, I wanted also to make the point that the last uh, that in a more recent period yeah. there has been a pushback against uh, populism in in the European Union in the in the member states. Uh, look at December uh, 2016 presidential elections in Austria, where the, eventually the pro-European candidate, a Green from the Green Party, mm -hmm. won the election. Look at um, the elections, the parliamentary elections in the Netherlands, where everybody or so many posters announced that Geert Wilders right. uh, would win the elections. Eventually, uh, the um, the outgoing prime minister mm -hmm. and the t more traditional uh, political parties won the election and, and will make uh, a coalition government. Um, the pushback in the Netherlands has had much to do with the high turnout. High turnout in the elections in the Netherlands helped the traditional parties to push back, let's say, the populist party of, 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 of Geert Wilders. Sure. Uh, and now we have to see in France, of course, this is extremely important for Europe uh, because uh, France has been at, at the cradle, at the origin of the whole construction. And without France, of course, and without the political support of France, and without a minimal confidence of the French in their own system and in their own, their own strength, um, it will be, of course, difficult to um, uh, to engage with Germany, and the engagement between France and Germany is essential for the further construction of the European Union. So I'd like to pivot on the topic of voter turnout yeah. to national identity and supranational identity. So, of course, we saw last summer in 2016 with... Uh, the populist slogans, well, in America, make America great again, and that ended up t taking the, the day on election day, and then in Britain, uh, Britain's first, right? Um, and then you actually had high voter turnout in um, the referendum by David Cameron that led to uh, Britain voting to leave the European Union, um, which doesn't necessarily align with what you saw in Austria and the Netherlands just now, where high voter turnout was correlated with support of the European Union. But I like to transition this, this idea of identity. So asking you individually, Ambassador Wouters, are you Belgian first or are you European first? And what does it mean to be Belgian? And what does it mean to be European? Well, to be European specifically, and there there's probably a bit of a difference with um, what characterizes uh, American society or other societies in the rest of the world, means that you're, you have multiple identities. Mm -hmm. 
I have a local identity. I have my roots in a in a beautiful village near Antwerp, which is called Braskas, where my parents are still living. I have my uh, regional roots. I have my national roots. I have an identity at um, at the European level. So, uh, and by the way, if I uh, what many people in Europe or outside Europe, I should say, forget is that if you are a citizen of a European country, you're also an EU citizen in legal terms. Mm-hmm. So, well, an American audience, especially one um, attuned to America's political history, might find many parallels between the European Union and the United States history. Of course, when you see the American Civil War in the 1860s, you find that many individuals who previously had very much identified as Americans um, actually identify with state first. So notably, Robert E. Lee was a general who, who identified first as a Virginian and secondary as an American. So in the Civil War came, he prioritized his, his state identity. Um, and then you also see in the late 18th century, before we have our Constitution and President George Washington, we have previous presidents under the Articles of Confederation, which was a more federalist system that I believe, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, may more closely resemble the European Union as a supranational organization where each individual member retains great sovereignty. And we found in America that the Articles of Confederation did not actually provide sufficient centralized federal power to hold the union together. That's why we had to have a constitutional convention second time and, and create the U.S. Constitution. So I guess my question for you is, to what extent do you believe there needs to be a stronger centralized power uh, emanating from Brussels and on the financial capital in Frankfurt and, and in the criminal court and, and in uh, The Hague? And to what extent does there need to be a stronger centralized power to ensure that the European Union does proceed um, healthfully uh, forward? Or do you think that the current structure is adequate? And of course, bringing in the identity piece, um, you know, again, in the 1860s in the United States, many of the leaders of the Confederacy felt themselves to be very much American, but they felt they were Georgians first, Carolinians first, Virginians first, and then Americans second. So kind of, I was wondering if you could contrast the, the analogy of the American experience with the 21st century European experience. Well, first of all, on the DNA of the European project in relationship to the whole question of sovereignty of a national state, I would like to, um, let's say, uh, do away with one big myth that exists and that many uh, like to to maintain on the uh, European Union on, on the project. And that is that the whole project is not about losing national sovereignty. This was the argument in the, during the, the referendum in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. We lost too much of our national sovereignty. We want to have it back. Mm-hmm. Okay? The DNA of the European Union project is about sharing sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole different story. And nothing is shared in the project without prior consent by the member states. We, the, always the, the question is asked, do you want to share, do you want uh, to, uh, let's say, engage in an activity at European level, to have a policy at European level developed by the EU institutions? Mm-hmm. It's always, always... We have not written the European treaties just 
in, uh, in an abstract way, we will ask the member states and on trade policy, do you want it to be common or not? On foreign policy, you want to cooperate or not? On, uh, and, and so I can, I can multiply the examples. Now, uh, this, this is really a criticism against the European Union that it takes away national sovereignty that drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that, uh, and I'm very, very passionate in fighting that uh, uh, unjustified uh, myth, uh, and I want to bust that myth uh, as strong as should, I can. Should states trade more national sovereignty in favor of empowering the EU to a greater extent than it already is? It, it depends on the challenges. Today, I mean, it's clear that uh, um, a number of problems have fragmented uh, the European Union and its member states take, uh, for example, the, the migration question uh, a couple of years ago, it was the financial crisis, the Eurozone crisis. These things have fragmented the question. And of course, the populists, mm -hmm. they will try to uh, uh, exploit that fragmentation mm -hmm. to even uh, to uh, confront the people even stronger with that fragmentation and to an antagonize even more on those issues which have fragmented. But the, the, the question is, uh, do uh, member states or some member states want to go beyond what is possible to do together today mm -hmm. or not? And we have asked that question uh, on the banking crisis. And I still remember a couple of years ago that the, some governors of national banks of the most important countries, I said, the banks and the banking crisis, we will deal with that ourselves. We will deal with our national champions, our big banks. Now, was that a healthy response? It was a temporary response because after some times they had, uh, they understood after the argument was made by the European Commission, by the European Central Bank and by many other people say, okay, it may be better that we approach this problem of the banking crisis together at the European level. We try to protect uh, the, the individual customer collectively and we try to have a surveillance, a supervision system that is at the European level so that we can have a quality label, not of a national making, but of a European making. And that is what happened. And today, the European Central Bank, in exercising this control over the banks okay. and in, uh, let's say, delivering the quality, uh, the quality label that banks are looking for uh, once they've capitalized enough and, and uh, they've solved their problems, I mean, the European Central Bank has even more power today than the Federal Reserve when it comes to controlling the banking sector. Ambassador Wutu, we're talking a lot about the European Union, but we're presently yeah. sitting in Washington, D.C., sure. where you represent the nation of Belgium yeah. in the United States. Now, you've previously been in the United States representing the European Union to an extent. Um, well, you've been, you've been the permanent representative of the EU in, in Europe, and then you've been in the United States as the deputy permanent representative to the United Nations in New York City representing Belgium, the United Nations. So you've had many different roles in which you've represented different entities in different capacities. I was wondering if you'd take a moment and speak about transatlantic EU-US relations and the difference between the relations between the European Union and the United States and the difference between 
Belgium and the United States, is there a difference in those different relationships? And how, I guess, would you, given your perspective of having probably worked um, with the United States as a member of a represent, the representative body in the European Union, I guess, how would you compare and contrast representing Europe's interests in relation to the transatlantic relationship with Belgium's interests? Well, again, um, the Belgium interest in the transatlantic relationship and the defending of the transatlantic relationship coincides a lot with the European interest in maintaining and defending that important relationship, a relationship that has extremely strong roots mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> uh, that go back to the history you were referring to yourself uh, earlier, uh, that goes back to very good examples of uh, and illustrations of transatlantic solidarity. Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple of, of days ago, we were, for example, in Kansas City to commemorate the, uh, the, the 100th anniversary of the entry into war mm-hmm. in, uh, on the 6th of April 1917 mm-hmm. by the United States into this great war, this terrible war, uh, uh, where the battlefields were most in, in Europe and 32 countries involved. It was, it was a great war also by the sheer uh, number of devastation and the number of, of casualties. So that was, a, that was a strong example of solidarity. There's another one, uh, maybe my favorite one, of uh, uh, transatlantic solidarity uh, in the direction, again, United States versus Europe, is the Marshall Plan, of which we are celebrating now the 70th anniversary, why is it a strong manifestation of solidarity? Because uh, Secretary of, of State uh, uh, Marshall, in I think it was in a commencement speech at Harvard University in '46, he said, "Well, uh, there is this sheer devastation after the Second World War. We have to rebuild uh, those 16 countries in Europe that are not on the direct influence of the uh, indirect threat uh, by uh, the Soviet Union." And, uh, but they have to organize themselves, they have to cooperate among themselves, and eventually 16, 16, 7 to 17 billion dollar was dispersed for reconstruction. It's an interesting example also because the, uh, uh, the European, the West Europeans themselves, in, the, in 1990, they used the same model to help the reconstruction of Central and Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall, they, their inspiration was the Marshall Plan, and they tried to show the same solidarity, Western Europe, with Central and Eastern Europe, as the solidarity that they had benefited from the United States uh, some decades, decades before. And isn't it also true that the Marshall Plan led to the formation of the European Economic Community, which later became the European Union? It's absolutely true that this was the true start of a period of economic cooperation and security cooperation in uh, in Europe. And let's not forget that Marshall mm-hmm. himself was personally convinced that in order to succeed, it would not be enough to limit the project to just economic cooperation. He also said the Europeans eventually will have to work together politically. Right. But in order to work together politically and develop the project that, as you said, became the communities and then the European Union, we needed the security, some protection, 
some security because there was a threat looming from the Soviet Union. And that became the NATO with this very strong Article 5 mm -hmm. saying an attack against one member of NATO uh, is an attack against all the members of NATO. And that's a very strong commitment, I would say. It was once invoked, as you may remember, this Article 5, this Article Supreme Article of Solidarity, after the attacks against the terrorist attack 9-11 uh -huh. New York, the article was invoked without consequence. It was a symbolic invocation. So there are many good manifestations of, um, I think, transatlantic solidarity. But the point I'm trying to make, as a Belgian ambassador in the United States, uh -huh. uh, we've been the last three weeks uh, traveling in the House and in the Senate, uh -huh. reaching out to bring these messages, we should not we should not depart from 70, 80 years of established policy of American support, bipartisan, to transatlantic community and to the European Union. And that's my message that I'm bringing. And I'm happy to say that uh, there has been um, there has been some there have been some signals that. Uh, uh, as far as uh, NATO is concerned, but also as far as the EU is concerned, things might be moving into into the right direction. So as we approach the end of this podcast episode, I'd like to call to attention, use, use as a metaphor, um, the fact that you're a long-distance runner. And it seems as though um, you've had a long-distance running career in diplomacy, trying to support multiculturalism and uh, the, the cooperation of different nations, different ethnicities, and, and, and the uh, ability for nations and individuals to hold simultaneously multiple identities and embrace those simultaneously without seeing them as mutually exclusive. So as a final question for this episode, in light of you being a long distance runner, I'd like to ask you to speak to um, an assembly of your neighbors, friends, and colleagues in your hometown. Um, uh, where you grew up. And I'd like you to pretend that there were uh, an assembly in the town square and speak to these Belgians and tell them, you know, in light of populist rhetoric and an acknowledgement of their strong nationalist Belgian identity, tell, how would you tell them the benefits of the European Union? How would you go ahead and say, make the argument and the case for cooperation and the holding of multiculturalism mm -hmm. and that that is not to the detriment of the Belgian identity? That's a very, very good question. Thank you for that. Here we go. I would apply the method of Socrates, this Greek philosopher, and go in the in a, a question-and-answer mood uh, with the people assembled in my village. And I would ask them, because I suspect I know the answer, I would ask them, what do you expect from Europe? And I know they will, they will tell me, well, what we would like, especially the young people in the village would say that, is to travel without disturbance, without any hindrance, from this beautiful city in the south, let's say Port uh, Lisbon, 
to this uh, uh, other beautiful city, Tallinn, in in, the, in uh, one of the Baltic states. And they would probably, if I insist with my question, say, yes, and okay, it would be an excellent idea, and we would be pleased if we would not have to change the currency. They would tell me that. And I would go on and on and on. And at the end, I would say, well, uh, my dear friends, that is what, let's say, the first Europeans and the second generation of Europeans, like myself, have been fighting for for six, seven decades. It's exactly that. And uh, and that's the reason why I think uh, you can... Uh, you should not be too parochial about your situation in your own village. Thank you. And that has been Ambassador Dirk Wouters, the Belgian ambassador to the United States, the former chairman of the Association of Diplomats of the Belgian Foreign Service, the former permanent representative to the European Union representing Belgium, and the former deputy permanent representative to the United Nations, uh, former chief of staff to the Belgian Minister of Foreign Affairs, professor and a former diplomatic advisor to Prime Minister Rompuy, who speaks about Europe not as an amorphous political uh, academic concept. This isn't political theory for Ambassador Wouters. Europe is a multicultural society that has real implications and real benefits for the people of Belgium and the rest of Europe, that you can be a tourist backpack, um, that you can uh, facilitate trade, that there is ease of travel, ease of currency, reduction of bureaucratic uh, uh, impediments to trade and travel, that really, for a man who speaks five languages, which, by the way, for American audience, is not that unusual for continental Europeans, who really can visit multiple countries uh, with a, just a few-hour car drive. Um, for individuals who, who live in Europe, they're so interconnected that really uh, Ambassador Wouter's uh, argument for, for multiculturalism and for Europe is, is one that op opposes populism not on the basis of rejecting national identity, but contrarily actually embracing national identity while embracing the influx of, of migrants and, and 21st century changes to what constitutes that identity. He has an open mind to the history that formed, especially the 20th century history that formed the European Union, and is here representing Belgium and the United States in, as a, uh, sharing a message of toleration, acceptance, and uh, open-mindedness that he uh, claims portrays what it is to be European. In essence, Ambassador Wouters advances the public interest on a national level and on a supranational level and on an international level simultaneously as a means of both being fiscally conservative, promoting trade, uh, promoting tourism, understanding the real implications of individuals' lives, and also what is the actual national and supranational agendas of these organizations, nations, uh, that he has represented. So, Ambassador Wouters, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. And this has been episode 179 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. 
I'll remind you to subscribe at publicinterestpodcast.com. Listen on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And should you wish to respond to this interview, you're welcome to call Public Interest Podcast at 240-630-0380. And that message could be placed live on the website. Should you feel comfortable with contributing to support this podcast, you're welcome to make a contribution at any level at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.